0: This is a Scream Queen production. These violent delights have violent ends. Violent ends. Violent ends. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Jen Carpenter, and this is Violent Ends. Welcome to season five. Did you miss me? I missed you. I hope everyone had a nice holiday and is off to a smashing start here in 2023. As is tradition, we're kicking the season off with a serial killer story, and one would think that after five seasons that we'd be all out of serial killers from Michigan to talk about, but no, no, sadly, there was no shortage of serial killers in the 1970s, especially in the Pacific Northwest. Unequivocally, the most infamous serial killer of that era and that area is Theodore Robert Bundy. But he wasn't the only middle aged white guy preying on pretty young girls with long hair parted down the middle during those very dark and dangerous days. Gary Addison Taylor, a.k.a. The Phantom, who was from Michigan, comes to mind. We talked about him toward the end of season one in the episode titled Lock Monster. Would you believe me if I told you that there was another serial killer from Michigan killing pretty girls out in the Pacific Northwest right around the same time that Bundy and The Phantom were active? Between January and May of 1976, the bodies of five young women, ranging from 14 to 26 years old, were found brutally murdered in the San Francisco Bay Area, in San Mateo County, to be exact, which is why the killer of unknown origin became known as the San Mateo Slasher. These five murders, which authorities believed were connected, which, I mean, bold move given the number of serial killers active in that area alone at the time, went unsolved for decades. When advancements in DNA technology finally produced a suspect, all roads led back to Michigan, as they so often do. Before we get into today's episode, though, I do want to thank our sponsor, Care Of is a subscription service that ships high-quality, personalized vitamins, supplements, and powders conveniently to your door every month. Prioritizing your health has never been easier. You just take a short, in-depth quiz about your lifestyle and health goals for a personalized, doctor-backed recommendation, taking the guesswork out of what supplements are best suited for you. The quiz is quick and easy, and I really like the fact that my input is what drives my recommendations. My plan is very much tailored to my needs and goals. This is not a one-size-fits-all situation. Because honestly, when does one size ever fit all? It's literally impossible. Here's something that's really cool. Care Of's free app allows you to track your progress, and when you're consistent with taking your vitamins daily, you earn rewards like discounts and free merch. Super fun. For 50% off your first Care Of order, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter promo code VIOLENTENDS50, all one word. Again, that's TakeCareOf.com promo code VIOLENTENDS50 for 50% off your first order. And be sure to tell them I sent you. All right, please keep your hands and arms inside the vehicle and buckle up, buttercups. It's time for a wild ride. 18-year-old Veronica Cassio, who went by Ronnie, was in a hurry to grow up. A straight-A student, Ronnie took extra classes in an effort to graduate early. She was on course to graduate in January of 1976 before her life came to an abrupt and violent end. She wanted to be a veterinarian. She loved animals. She even had her own horse. Uh, She took care of that horse with money that she earned babysitting. She was so highly sought after that the entire neighborhood knew they had to book with Ronnie weeks or even months in advance. Ronnie was described as not a joiner in one article that I read. So to me, that kind of implies that she marched to the beat of her own drum, maybe didn't have a ton of friends, but she was well-liked and pleasant to be around. She was the second of five children. She had an older sister who was married and lived nearby, as well as two little brothers who were just 10 and 11 in 1976, as well as a three-year-old baby sister. The Casio family lived in Pacifica, a beach town of just under 40,000 that is very popular amongst the surfing community. Rockaway Beach is a fave. I've actually heard of that. A lot of the stuff from today I'd never heard of, but I have heard of Rockaway Beach. After Ronnie's graduation, her family was planning to move to Middleton, a much smaller town with less than 1,500 residents that was about two hours north and a bit more inland than Pacifica was. Pacifica was like right on the ocean, hence the name Pacifica, Pacific Ocean, Pacifica. They already had a home and they had a good chunk of property there, which uh, that's where Ronnie's horse lived, was at their home in Middleton. On the evening of January seventh, 1976, Ronnie left her home on Seaside Drive to go to a sleepover at her best friend Linda's house in the nearby town of San Bruno. Ronnie's parents were out of town that week. They were at the Middleton property preparing for the big move, so a family friend was staying with Ronnie and her three younger siblings. The plan was for this person to take Ronnie to her friend Linda's house, but um, this family friend fell ill, wasn't feeling real great, so Ronnie said, it's fine, I'll just take the bus. So she walked the few blocks from her house to a public bus stop on the corner of Bradford and Fairway Drive, which was a well-lit intersection on the edge of a really popular golf course. Unbeknownst to Ronnie, she was at the wrong bus station. The last bus for the evening had run through at 5.49 p.m., whereas Ronnie was seen still standing at the bus stop at 6.30 uh, wearing blue jeans, a t-shirt, a rust-colored jacket, and a brown purse with a Disneyland keychain hanging from it. The pretty petite teenager wore her long brown hair parted down the middle. When Ronnie never got off the bus in San Bruno, where Linda and her family were waiting to pick her up, they called the Casio home. That family friend that was staying confirmed that Ronnie had left for the bus stop. Ronnie's parents, who were two hours away, were notified, hey, we don't don't know where Ronnie went, and so they contacted the police around 9.30 p.m. When midnight rolled around and Ronnie was still nowhere to be found, she was officially classified as a missing person, and a bolo was put out as police began their search. The next afternoon, right around 30, 16-year-old Dave Lippman was walking home for lunch, and he took a short, cor- short, cor- shortcut through Sharp Park Golf Course. Okay, that one wasn't fair. That was a lot of similar sounds. We'll try it again, though. He took a short, cut-through, sharp park golf course. There we go. Just beyond the green of the second hole, at the bottom of a six-foot gully, he spotted the nearly nude body of a young girl. He ran to the nearest house and called police. Police had to use a ladder to get down to the body, and they were able to confirm that it was that of Ronnie Cassio. She'd been raped and stabbed in the chest and neck over 30 times. Ronnie's heartbroken dad officially identified her body and instead of planning Ronnie's graduation party for later that month, they began planning her funeral. While the Cassios prepared to lay Ronnie to rest, authorities implemented a rigorous manhunt. Every stranger and suspicious character in the area was questioned. Some were even booked into custody but later released when their alibis checked out or police couldn't find any actual evidence beyond just he looks a little sketch. The Cassios buried Ronnie on January 16th, 1976, in a cemetery near their new home in Middleton that they were getting ready to move to because they wanted to keep Ronnie close. Before the community of San Mateo County even had time to process this senseless loss of such a bright light, they found themselves facing a new nightmare when another pretty, petite teenage girl with long brown hair parted down the middle went missing from the same neighborhood just a week after Ronnie's funeral on January 24, 1976. Less than five miles from where the Cassio family lived was the home of the Blackwell family, where 14-year-old Tatiana, who went by Tanya, lived with her parents and five siblings. A freshman in high school, Tanya was an independent young lady who wanted to do good with her life. She had a soft spot for children, and she hoped to someday work with the Save the Children organization as either a missionary or a medical professional of some sort. She just wanted to be a part of changing the world. Around 10 p.m. on the evening of Saturday, January 24th, Tanya left her home to walk to the 7-Eleven down the block where a couple of her friends were working. She told her mother that if her boyfriend Arthur called, she wanted him to come meet her at the 7-Eleven. If he didn't show up, Tanya might hop a bus to go spend the night in San Francisco at the home of her brother's girlfriend, Christina Torno. Either way, she promised she'd call to let her mother know where she was going and when she'd be home. But that call never came. So the following morning, Tanya's mother began making calls. Tanya wasn't in San Francisco with Christina. She'd never caught up with her boyfriend, Arthur. And when Tanya's mother found out that her daughter had never shown up at the 7-Eleven that night, she became concerned enough to phone the police. Tanya was a responsible, steady, level-headed girl who would never take off without telling her family where she was going. Now, As we all know, authorities didn't often take missing persons cases super serious at first, at least not back in the 70s. Lots and lots of runaways, right? But given the fact that this was just a couple weeks after Ronnie Cassio was kidnapped and murdered and the girls lived in the same neighborhood and they looked so much alike, police were immediately concerned and they started a large-scale search for the missing 14-year-old. One neighbor said that he saw her at a bus stop along Sharp Park Road around 11 o'clock the night that she disappeared, but beyond that, authorities really had no leads. It would be well into the summer before Tanya's body was found. On June 6, 1976, over four months after Tanya disappeared into thin air, two young boys hiking in an area known as Gypsy Hill found a badly decomposed body in a grove of trees just off Sharp Park Road. The body was wearing the same blue jeans, western print blouse, and platform shoes that Tanya Blackwell was last seen in. She'd been stabbed multiple times in the chest and neck. Due to the advanced state of decomposition, authorities were unable to determine whether she had been raped. Dental records were used to positively identify her, and on June 10th, Tanya's family received the news they'd been dreading but knew was coming. Tanya was laid to rest on June 14, 1976, almost five months to the day after her neighbor Ronnie Cassio's funeral. But between those two somber ceremonies, three other girls bearing a striking resemblance to Ronnie and Tanya, who lived in the same area, were killed in an eerily similar way. February 4th, 1976 was a Wednesday. It had been 28 days since Ronnie Cassio was murdered and 11 days since the disappearance of Tanya Blackwell in the Oceanside City of Pacifica, California. Millbrae is a slightly smaller town located less than 10 miles inland from Pacifica and also in San Mateo County. This is where 17-year-old Paula Baxter lived with her parents and brother. Paula was one of the popular kids at Cappuccino High School, where she was head majorette in the band. She was a baton instructor with the local parks and rec department, and she and her family were active members of Cavalry Lutheran Church, just a happy, bright, shiny life. On the evening of February 4th, she left her home at 7 p.m. in her bronze Chevy Vega to go to play practice at the high school. She left the high school around 8 p.m., headed for home, but she never arrived, so her parents reported her missing to the police. At about 3 a.m. the following morning, so seven-ish hours after she disappeared, Paula's car was found just a few blocks from the high school, the keys still in the ignition. The wheels, undercarriage, and driver's side floor of the car were covered in mud, there were unaccounted for miles on the vehicle, and a blue blanket that Paula kept in the back seat was missing, and Paula was nowhere to be found. When a search by police turned up no additional clues, Paula's friends organized their own search on February 8th, two days after she went missing. In a eucalyptus grove behind a local church, they found Paula's nude body. She'd been stabbed, raped, and bludgeoned. Authorities were able to use hair and semen samples to link the murders of 17-year-old Paula Baxter and 18-year-old Ronnie Cassio. So even though they had a sneaking suspicion that there was a serial killer in town, they did know for sure that at least those two murders were connected. They also knew that they were looking for a white male with brown hair. Needless to say, authorities in San Mateo County were on high alert at this point. They had two murdered teenagers and one missing, presumed murdered teenager in the course of a month. Even so, when Michael Booth contacted police on March 15th to tell them his wife hadn't returned home from her first day at a new job as a secretary, they didn't immediately make the connection. For one thing, Carol Lee Booth, who went by Beatty, was much older than the girls. She was 26, uh, although it was said that she could easily pass for a teenager. She looked really young. Additionally, Beatty went missing in South San Francisco, which it may surprise you. Like it surprised me to find out that South San Francisco isn't just the South part of San Francisco, it's actually its own little city. South San Francisco is located in San Mateo County, about nine miles northeast of Pacifica, where this nightmare began. So a little bit inland, a little bit further away than than we've been dealing with. Beattie was last seen getting off a bus at the corner of El Camino Real and Arroyo streets in South San Francisco in the early evening hours, walking toward home. She was spotted headed toward a shortcut behind Kaiser Hospital that was mostly used by the local high school kids to walk home from school. And it was along that shortcut that her body was found nearly two months after she disappeared by two teenage boys. She was buried in a shallow grave in a heavily wooded area near Colma Creek. She'd been stabbed multiple times, but authorities were unable to determine whether she had been raped. The San Mateo murders began just a week into 1976, and there had been at least one per month since. Ronnie Cassio and Tanya Blackwell in January, Paula Baxter in February, Beattie Booth in March, and on April 1st, perhaps the most shocking murder of all, the murder of Denise Lamp. If you've ever seen the show Weeds, then you're familiar-ish with Daly City because it's the town that inspired the song Little Boxes, you know, that Little Boxes made of ticky-tacky song, and that was the Weeds theme song. Uh, The intro to the show, at least in the beginning, um, was kind of a mock-up of what Daly City really looked like from afar, like identical, nondescript houses all in a row. The largest of the cities involved in the San Mateo murders, it has a population of well over 100,000 and is located on the San Francisco Bay directly south of San Francisco, not to be confused with South San Francisco, which is also a city. Actor Sam Rockwell, which he's been in a ton of shit, but the only thing that I can like remember off the top of my head is Charlie's Angels, but he's been in a lot of movies. NFL legend and video game god John Madden, and Dave Pelzer, author of the A Child Called It memoir, which I'm sure at least 75% of us were traumatized by, all once called Daily City Home, as did Denise Lamp. Denise was 19 years old in 1976, living at home with her parents and working part-time as a sales girl at Mervyn's in the Monte Mall, a ginormous shopping center taking up literally over a million square feet. A million square feet sounds like a lot to me. That's a lot, right? It's got to be. The mall was fairly new at this time, too. It had just been built in 1969, so in 1976, it was the place to be which is why Denise, who was pretty and popular with long brown hair that she parted down the middle, was there on April 1st, even though she wasn't scheduled to work that day. She did some shopping, and then she visited with a friend who worked at Macy's in the mall. The mall closed at 9 p.m., so Denise and her friend made plans to meet back at Denise's place, which was only about two miles from the mall in less than a 10-minute drive. The girls parted ways to go to their respective vehicles. When the friend arrived at Denise's house a short time later, Denise wasn't there yet, so she waited in the driveway as the minutes ticked by. But as 9.30 came and went, she got worried, so she drove back to the mall to look for Denise. She spotted Denise's blue 1964 Mustang still sitting in the parking lot. She found a security guard to accompany her before she approached the car, which was very smart, inside, Denise was slumped over the steering wheel, dead from over 20 stab wounds to her neck and chest. Could you even imagine being this friend like you literally just saw her 20 minutes ago? You parted ways to go to your own cars and this happened to her? That's it's, I, can't, I can't even imagine that trauma. And then to be the person that found her, too, (sighs) I— While the crime itself was shocking, the fact that it happened as quite literally hundreds of shoppers were passing by is just so horrific, so horrific. And somehow nobody saw or heard anything. While the Pacific Northwest certainly was not done with serial killers— The April 1st, 1976 murder of Denise Lamp was the final murder attributed to the San Mateo slasher. Remember that date, April 1st, 1976. Jot it down. Between January 8th and April 1st, 1976, five beautiful young women, all petite with long brown hair parted down the middle, were stabbed to death in San Mateo County. Three of them were last spotted at a bus stop. Four of them were found in groves, hidden among trees. Four of them were teenagers, and the one who wasn't looked young and could still pass for a teenager. And all of them had friends and families that thought the world of them. The most tragic thing these cases had in common was that they all quickly went cold, Even though forensic evidence only conclusively linked two of the cases, authorities believe that all five murders were committed by the same man, the San Mateo slasher. Why, in the golden age of the serial killer, in an area so rife with them, would they just automatically assume that all of this murdering was being done by one person? Probably because the only thing more horrifying than having a serial killer in town is having two serial killers in town. While the San Mateo murders went unsolved, they were never forgotten. In 2014, new tests were run on the hair and semen samples collected from Ronnie Cassio and Paula Baxter, and a DNA match was discovered. The killer's DNA belonged to 65-year-old Rodney Lynn Halbauer, a career criminal and Michigan native. Before we get into all that, though, I do need to thank today's other sponsor. Listen, I'm ashamed to say it, but the only thing green about me is my eyes. And as our planet quickly goes to hell in a handbasket, the eco-guilt is real. I want to recycle everything in my house that's recyclable. I want to get all of my household products from the low-waste shop in town. I want to compost, but it's all just so much work, right? Not anymore. Lomi is a countertop electric composter that allows me to turn my food scraps into dirt with the push of a button. It is literally like magic. When I was a kid, I had a rock tumbler and I would like sit there right next to it while it worked even though I couldn't see the magic happening inside and it took forever, Lomi kind of gives me that same feeling of excited anticipation. Food scraps in, nutrient-rich soil out. How do you do it? Even better, Lomi works much faster than a rock tumbler, and you can actually buy an accessory called the Lomi Skylight that allows you to watch it in action. Lomi is quiet, there's no smell, and it does its thing in under four hours. I've still got a long way to go to reach eco-conscious status that I'm looking for, but Lomi's got me off to a great start. As you guys know, I live in a house full of boys, and we go through a lot of food. So being able to repurpose those table scraps instead of tossing them into the trash has allowed us to cut down on our garbage going out each week. We might even be able to go from two dumpster bins to one again one of these days. That would be cool. Less garbage in the landfills means less methane being produced. And not only am I helping the environment a little, I've now got an endless supply of nutrient-rich dirt. I might be able to keep plants alive now. Maybe I'll even start a garden. Who knows? It's a whole new world. The possibilities are endless. If you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just make after-dinner cleanup a whole lot easier... Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com slash violent and use promo code violent for $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to L-O-M-I.com slash violent and use promo code violent at checkout. Food waste is gross and it attracts critters. And who wants to be taking their scraps out to the dumpster in the middle of winter? Not me, friends. Let Lomi help. And as always, be sure to tell them I sent you. All right, speaking of trash, Rodney Lynn Hallbauer was born in Wisconsin on June 27, 1948, to Byron and Marion Hallbauer, one of six children four boys, two girls. When Rodney was a baby, the family left Wisconsin and moved to Muskegon, Michigan. We've talked about Muskegon before, the multiple Thanksgiving massacres, the disappearance of Jessica Haringa, just to name a couple of examples. But quick refresh, Muskegon is a Lake Michigan beach town known for its dunes and state parks. My personal favorite is the old school drive-in movie theater they've got there. Uh, Muskegon is also where Rodney Halbauer's life of crime began. When he was just nine years old, so around 1957, police picked him up for smashing out the windows of a cabin near his home. And it all went downhill from there. According to Rodney's own brother, he was known as a loner and a bully. He told one newspaper, everybody in the neighborhood was terrorized by him. We all got together, tied him up, laid him in the road, and he got away, chased us with a butcher knife. I don't, I don't know if that specific story makes Rodney sound like the villain. Anyway, in addition to being a little psychopath, Rodney was also extremely intelligent and artistic. He had aspirations of making it as an artist or musician someday. He skipped school a lot, and he fought with teachers and other students. The trouble in school, however, came to an abrupt end when Rodney was just 13 years old, so this would have been around 1961. He stole a car, crashed it, got arrested, was sent to a juvenile detention facility, escaped from that facility, was captured, and was sent back to said facility. Jesus. When I was 13, I was... No, I was actually pretty, I was actually pretty bad. But I was not bad like that. Rodney never returned to mainstream school after that incident, although he would eventually earn his high school diploma in prison. Rodney's escape from Juvie Hall when he was 13 was just the beginning of the thing that he would become best known for in West Michigan escaping police custody. He was released from his stint in Juvie in 1963 after about two years, but he violated his probation real quick and was sent back to jail in 1964. Real jail this time, without passing go and without collecting his $200. He was released that same year at the age of 16 but again, he was not a free man-child for long. The following year, in 1965, he was arrested for breaking and entering and was sentenced to five years in prison, and he escaped again. Again. He was captured. Again. And then he was released again. A small blurb in the February 7, 1969, Detroit Free Press read, Lost one pair of handcuffs. Muskegon Heights police are searching for Rodney Halbauer, 20, who was placed in a police cruiser Wednesday while police searched his home for loot taken from a grocery store. When they returned, Halbauer was gone, handcuffs and all. While on the lam from that escape, Rodney tried to make a go of a normal life. He met and fell in love with 17-year-old Aurelia Anderson and the two had a daughter, April, in 1970. But Rodney wouldn't get to play family man for long. On August 22, 1970, 22-year-old Rodney, 19-year-old Aurelia, and 3-month-old baby April were traveling through Grand Rapids, which is not far from Muskegon, when a patrolman attempted to pull Rodney over for a traffic violation. At the time, Rodney had a warrant out for forgery that had been issued by the FBI. And it's unclear if he was still missing following that escape with the police handcuffs in 1969, but definitely at least the FBI thing. So when the officer tried to pull Rodney over, he gunned it. He ran through eight red lights and 20 stop signs at a high rate of speed as he led authorities on a high-speed chase with his girlfriend and newborn baby in the car. The chase ended in East Grand Rapids, which, like South San Francisco, is its own city, when Rodney crashed into a house with his girlfriend and baby in the car. Rodney then took off on foot, leaving Aurelia and April behind, and he was able to elude police. Four months went by before Rodney popped up in the news again with this article in the Ludington Daily News from December 14, 1970. The headline was, Escape Artist from Muskegon Caught by FBI, and it read, Rodney Lynn Halbauer, 22-year-old former Muskegon Heights resident who has a reputation of being an escape artist, has been arrested in Clearwater, Florida by FBI agents, authorities said today. Hal most recent escape was in Grand Rapids in August when his car crashed into a home during a high-speed police chase and he fled, abandoning his wife, they weren't married, Aurelia, 19, and their three-month-old daughter, who was left in the vehicle. He was picked up in Florida for unlawful flight to avoid prosecution and for breaking and entering and forgery at Grand Rapids. Halbauer escaped from the Muskegon County Jail in September 1965 while held on a larceny charge, from a Muskegon Heights patrol car while handcuffed in February 1969, and is credited with escapes from jails in California, Hawaii, and in Hart, Michigan. A human banana peel, that guy! All that, and he is only 22 years old. When I was 22, I was married with two kids and owned my own house. Like, I used to think that was a flex, but I have got nothing on Banana Boy here. Rodney was sent back to prison, and he stayed this time for his full five-year sentence. He was released in late 1975 at the age of 27, and he promptly moved out west to Reno, Nevada, And it was here that his life of crime took him from a petty criminal and escape artist to a real-life monster. November twenty seventh, 1975 was Thanksgiving Day, and it started out as a strange one in Reno. Authorities were busy with dumpster fires all over town, literally. Someone was setting fires in dumpsters all over the city in the early morning hours. When a private security guard who'd been advised to keep an eye out for the dumpster fire starter spotted a man running through an alley, he called it in and he followed the man until police arrived. Police questioned the man, searched him, took down his information, and ran a check for outstanding warrants. When nothing came back on the warrant check, they let him go, even though he was found to have several books of matches in his pocket." Just minutes later, a police dispatcher put out the description of a suspect in a brutal rape that had just occurred, and the police who'd stopped Rodney Halbauer were like, fuck, that's the guy we just talked to. He wasn't an arsonist. It was much worse than that. He was now a rapist. About that same time, police got word that Halbauer did, in fact, have an outstanding warrant for escaping authorities in Sacramento. It took a couple of hours, but authorities eventually located him in downtown Reno, and they took him into custody. A woman who was somewhere between the ages of 23 and 37 depending on which super unreliable newspaper article you read. I saw 23, 33, 37, and it's impossible for me to figure out which one was correct because this woman was never publicly identified by name. Uh, She worked as a blackjack dealer at a local casino, and she was walking home from work around 2.30 a.m. when she heard what sounded like someone running up behind her. As she turned around, a man grabbed her and held a knife to her throat. He forced her to the rear of an apartment building where he ordered her to strip and then he sexually assaulted her with an object before raping her. Richard Glenn, the manager of the apartment building, heard what sounded like a woman in distress so he opened his door to see what was going on. It was dark, obviously, it was 2.30 in the morning, so he couldn't really see very well, but he was able to make out what looked like two people lying on the sidewalk, one on top of the other. According to his statement, he thought it was just two hippies having sex in the middle of a sidewalk at 3 a.m. on Thanksgiving. He called out to ask if everything was all right. According to the woman's testimony, she twice called out to Glenn that things were not all right. But the man told him that everything was fine, and then he kind of led the woman away by the arm very quickly. Glenn said that he didn't hear the woman respond to him at all, uh, and he blamed the wind, and said that maybe the wind just kind of carried her voice away because it was so windy out that morning, he, could just, he just must not have heard her. But according to weather reports, wind speeds on that awful morning were no more than two miles an hour. Also, Glenn's reliability as a witness and just a, like a human in general were in question because a few days after the rape, police were called back out to Glenn's apartment building on a completely unrelated matter and Glenn was said to have greeted police by barking at them and making hissing noises. So, yeah. Yeah. As Rodney Halbauer dragged the woman down another street telling her all of the horrible things that he was going to do to her, the woman started to resist loudly. She knew that if Rodney got her alone again um, in a more secluded spot, he was probably going to kill her. So she started screaming, and that led to people turning on their porch lights and opening their doors to see what was going on. So Rodney fled And that's when he was spotted by that security guard minutes later. The woman ran to the closest home and she began knocking on the door. A man by the name of Fred Pedro, who we fucking hate, by the way, opened his door to find this woman standing on his front porch wearing nothing but an army fatigue jacket, holding the rest of her clothes in her hands, shaking and crying. She told him she'd been raped and asked him to call the police. He told her she didn't look like she'd just been raped, and he slammed the door in her face. Why? Why, are men? Just why? This poor girl was literally just walking home from work in a neighborhood that was apparently nothing but men. One man attacked her. Another man watched it happen and did nothing, and another man told her that he didn't believe her while she was still naked. What the fuck? What? Just Also, all this happened less than a block from where this woman lived, so she was in her own neighborhood, and it was directly across the street from Reno's Rape Crisis Center. Ignore the sound of my ceiling fan buzzing in the background for the rest of this episode. I have to turn it on because my blood is boiling, honey. It is boiling. So this poor woman had to walk home naked and alone just after being raped with no idea where her attacker went and if he was coming back, by the way. She made it home. She contacted police who just by chance knew exactly who they were looking for, and they were able to take him into custody without incident. He was charged with rape and two counts of infamous crimes against nature. Don't ask me what that means because I have no idea. I have a little bit of an idea, but I don't really want to get into the details because they're horrific, and I cannot believe that they were able to print things like this in the newspaper back then. He was held for a few weeks, but then on December 23rd, 1975, a judge reduced his bail from $60,000 to $5,000, meaning his family only had to come up with $500, which is 10% of the bail amount, to get him out. And of course they did. Less than two weeks later, on January 7, 1976, 18-year-old Veronica Cassio was abducted from a bus stop near her Pacifica, California home. For the next several months, an entire community lived in fear of the San Mateo slasher, as pretty young girls kept turning up missing and murdered, until the attacks abruptly ended on April first, when Denise Lamp was found stabbed to death in her car in the Monte Mall parking lot. On April 2nd, the very next day, Rodney Halbauer was found guilty on charges of forcible rape and infamous crimes against nature by a jury of eight men and four women. The day after the last attack, Rodney Halbauer was taken into custody, and then there were no more attacks. This meant that during the four months he was out on bail that his fucking family posted— for a vicious rape. Five young women were brutally murdered in San Mateo County, and then the murder stopped as soon as Rodney was taken back into custody. But nobody made that connection at the time. Maybe because, you know, different states, like 250 miles apart, I don't know. On May seventh, 1976, Judge James Guinan sentenced 27-year-old Rodney Halbauer to two life sentences plus six years for the attack on this woman in Reno. And that should have been the end of Rodney's reign of terror. But as we all know, and as authorities should have known, you can put Rodney Halbauer in prison, but you can't keep him there. Just over a year later, in June of 1977, the escape artist extraordinaire jumped the barbed wire fence at the Maximum Security State Prison in Carson City, Nevada, following an inmate baseball game. Before guards even realized he was gone, he was on his way back to Michigan. Rodney returned to Muskegon, found his daughter, who was now seven years old, and kidnapped her. He returned the girl to her mother on July 21st after she agreed to meet up with him in Grand Rapids, Um, so no police were contacted. It was all handled very quickly. But he changed his mind, it seems, because just a a week later, he kidnapped her again. He went to the home where Aurelia and April were staying with friends in the middle of the night, cut the phone lines, entered through a kitchen window, and stole away into the night with his daughter. Aurelia made it to the door just in time to watch Rodney drive off with seven-year-old April. 24 hours later, Muskegon police arrested Rodney as he attempted to break into a business in the early morning hours, but he was alone. They found 7-year-old April a short time later, unharmed, wrapped in a blanket, with food and money beside her, hidden in a clump of bushes. Rodney was charged with kidnapping, but Michigan authorities agreed to return him to Nevada to finish serving out his two life sentences, as a kidnapping charge wouldn't carry as long of a sentence, obviously. So Rodney was sent back to Nevada, but he was determined not to stay there. Just a few months later, on December 15th, 1977, Rodney and another inmate escaped by climbing a wall, walking across a roof, and cutting through two chain-link fences, Rodney was gone almost a year that time, before being recaptured. On July seventh, nineteen 1979, prison guards spotted Rodney outside the fence of the Nevada State Prison. He'd cut through three sets of bars, the ones in his cell, the ones outside his cell, and the ones on the window of his cell house. He was within 100 yards of freedom, again, again, when guards saw him, fired a warning shot, and he surrendered without further incident. On January 16, 1984, corrections officers found a hacksaw in Rodney's cell, which they took away before he was able to Shawshank his way out. On December 13, 1986, during a prison softball game, 36-year-old Rodney Halbauer and another inmate escaped from the Nevada State Prison in Carson City a fucking again again. He stole a car, and he wound up in Medford, Oregon. Four days after his escape... On December 17th, 1986, a 23-year-old woman arrived at the drugstore she worked at at about 9.45 a.m. She parked around the back of the building, uh, as was standard for employees, and she spotted Rodney leaning up against the building. He asked her why she was parked out back, and she told him it was to leave more room for customers out front. As he approached, she kind of put his arm around the woman and like, put her in a bear hug She tried to push him away, but he pulled out a knife. Thinking Rodney just wanted to rob her, she offered her purse, but he grabbed her, and he began to pull her toward a nearby field. The woman believed that Rodney intended to rape and or kill her, so she started to fight back. He stabbed her 19 times, grabbed her purse, and took off. She managed to make it into the building, and her coworkers contacted authorities. A customer was able to provide police with a description of Rodney's car, and he was captured a short time later with the woman's purse sitting in the passenger seat. The woman survived the attack, and she was able to ID Rodney from her hospital bed. Rodney was charged with robbery, assault, and attempted murder. And sometimes in some versions of this story, you will see that he was charged with rape, but that's actually not accurate. If you look at his prison record uh, and just the accounting of what happened, this case, he, he didn't get that far. He stabbed her, but he wasn't able to get her alone to rape her because she fought back. He was convicted and he was sentenced to 15 to 30 years in prison, but he couldn't start serving that sentence until he served his two life sentences plus six years, plus all of the additional years that had been tacked on for all of his escapes. May 2nd, 1988, was another documented attempted escape by Rodney Halbauer. He was found cutting through the bars of his cell window with a hacksaw blade holding an escape kit that contained a change of clothes and an address book. Who is giving him these things? Like, where is he getting these things? And why is he allowed to still be in a cell with windows? Like, have you met this man? Hello? According to another inmate... It was Rodney's mother who had given him these things. She'd sneaked the hacksaw blade in as well as the items in his escape kit. I'm sure that over the next 25 years, there were many, many more escape attempts and probably at least a few more escape successes. But we're going to skip way ahead now to 2013. Rodney Halbauer is now 65 years old. He is serving two life terms plus a couple decades in Nevada for his attack on the blackjack dealer in Reno in 1975 and a ridiculous number of escapes. And he has a 15 to 30-year sentence for attempted murder waiting for him in Oregon. Well, the absolute garbage Nevada prison system decided that uh, this man was a good candidate for parole. How do you get parole with two life sentences? <sighs> okay, let's not get too mad about it though. Let's let's just let's calm it down because in this case, this turns out to be a good thing. So, the state of Nevada decides to let this monster loose, but that does not mean releasing him to the streets. That means releasing him to the state of Oregon. So, in November of 2013, They transport him to Oregon to serve 13 years before he even gets there. He's scheduled to be released in 2026, which, like, saying that now in 2023 is shocking because if what happened next hadn't happened, this fucker would be being released in a couple years. Somehow, during this interstate transport from Nevada to Oregon, Rodney does not escape for a change. I've seen the mugshots. He's looking pretty rough by this point, so he's probably lost some of the pep in his step, maybe. Upon intake at the prison in Oregon, a blood sample is taken to be entered into a database because it's 2013 and that's a thing now, right? While I know this isn't how it happened, I like to think of this database as like a big switchboard with all kinds of lights and bells and whistles, and that when they entered Rodney Halbauer's DNA profile into the system, the thing started lighting up like a Christmas tree. I'm sure in reality it was probably something much more boring, like an email or a pop-up screen, but the point is, there were hits, multiple hits. Two of them were for Ronnie Cassio and Paula Baxter. Holy shit. Had they had the San Mateo slasher in custody this entire time? Well, not, not the entire time, I guess. He did escape a lot. As authorities were reeling from this development, trying to figure out what it all meant They got another hit for the murder of a 19-year-old nursing student in Reno, Nevada in 1976 at the height of the San Mateo murders. Diana Barbara Michelle Mitchell, who simply went by Michelle, was born on December 29, 1956 in Carlsbad, New Mexico. She was one of four daughters born to Edwin and Barbara Mitchell, who were both high school teachers. The Mitchell family moved to Reno when Michelle was little, Uh, Michelle was popular, smart, a good girl. She was super pretty, long brown hair, parted down the middle, big blue eyes. She graduated from high school in 1974, and she enrolled at the nursing program at the University of Nevada, where she was a sophomore at the time of her death. On the evening of February 24th, 1976, Michelle's father, who was diabetic, called her from the Sterling Village bowling alley and asked her to bring him a jug of orange juice as he was having trouble with his blood sugar. Ever the sweet and helpful daughter, Michelle hopped in her little yellow VW Beetle, super weird coincidence, and started driving toward the bowling alley. But on the way, her car broke down. Witnesses saw a man help her push her car into a nearby parking lot. Michelle then made her way to a payphone and called her mom at about 8, 10 p.m. Just kind of imagine like probably the simple chaos in that phone call. Everything's going wrong all at once. Dad's sick and he needs orange juice and the orange juice is in my car, but my car is broken down and some stranger had to help me push it off the street. Fuck this day, right? We've all had them. Michelle's mother immediately gets into her car, and she goes straight to the location that her daughter gave, which is less than 20 minutes from their home. But when she gets there, Michelle is nowhere to be found. Her car is in the parking lot across the street from the payphone that she'd used to call her mom, but Michelle was just gone. So, Barbara called police, she called her husband, and together they searched the area to no avail. At one point, they even brought in like a tracking dog. He didn't find anything. But a couple hours later, an elderly couple that lived in the neighborhood returned home after an evening out. Their house was kind of adjacent to this parking lot where Michelle's car was left, like just across an alley. There was this dirt alley that led from the parking lot to the edge of their property. So, They arrived home, opened their garage door, and inside their garage was the body of a young woman lying in a pool of blood, her throat slit, and her hands tied behind her back. The woman, of course, was Michelle Mitchell. Police were able to track down the man who had helped Michelle push her car out of the road. He said that after they got her car into this parking lot, he offered her a ride. She said, you know, her parents didn't live far. She was just going to call her mom. She'd be all set. So he was like, okay, cool, and he went about his business. Police believed him, and they cleared him as a suspect. They had no other leads, aside from a man's shoe print size nine, 9, and a half, and a couple of cigarette butts found near the body. Nobody who lived in the home was a smoker, and the owners said the cigarette butts had no reason to be in their garage and that they weren't there earlier in the day. Now, remember, this was an elderly couple. This wasn't like an apartment building or a frat house on campus where tons of people were coming and going. This was an elderly couple who kept their garage closed and their house nice and tidy. So when something was out of place, they noticed. Despite an exhaustive search for Michelle's killer, the case went cold. Then, three years later, things took a pretty unexpected turn. In March of 1979, Police in Shreveport, Louisiana contacted the Reno Police Department with an odd story. A 29-year-old woman by the name of Anita Carter, who called herself Kathy Woods, was a residential patient at a mental facility where she was being treated for severe schizophrenia. During a counseling session, she told her therapist that she had killed a girl named Michelle in Reno a few years earlier. Detectives booked it to Shreveport as fast as their flashing lights could take them, and they interrogated Kathy, whose mental illness was quite severe and well-documented. She was first hospitalized at the age of 11, and she was diagnosed with schizophrenia. So the story Kathy told authorities was that she had encountered Michelle in the parking lot with her you know, disabled car, and she offered to help her fix it. She led her to the garage of this home under the guise of, this is my house, let's go get some tools and I'll help you fix it. So together, they go into this garage and once inside, Kathy, who was 26 at the time, propositioned 19-year-old Michelle for sex. When Michelle turned her down, Kathy flew into a rage and slit Michelle's throat. Records proved that Kathy was living in Reno at the time of the murder, and she did give them some accurate details regarding the case, but it was nothing that hadn't been shared in the media. She also told police that she worked for the FBI and that her mother was trying to kill her. So how and why, like, I mean, this was clearly a very unwell woman, um, how they thought that her confession was reliable, and just kind of went full steam ahead with it. That's somewhat suspicious to me, Um, but that's what happened. So Kathy Woods was extradited to Nevada, where she was tried for first-degree murder in 1980. Literally, that entire case was built on Kathy's confession and the fact that she lived in Reno. There was zero physical evidence, not even any circumstantial evidence, and there were no witnesses, and all this time... Police had been searching for a man. Every bit of evidence they had pointed to Michelle's killer being a man. But Kathy Woods was found guilty nonetheless and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Five years later, her conviction was overturned and a new trial was granted on the grounds that a key witness was concealed by the prosecution and should have been allowed to testify. At her second trial, Kathy was convicted of first degree murder once again, and once again, she was sentenced to life in prison. By this time, she had fully recanted her confession, the one thing that authorities had on her. Yes, she had lived in the area at the time, so she'd heard about this case. She saw pictures of Michelle and she thought she was beautiful. She was beautiful. And perhaps she, you know, fantasized about her a bit, which led her to creating this narrative in her head that was absolutely false, but authorities would hear none of it, and all of Kathy's subsequent appeals were denied. In 2013, Kathy's case was taken up by the Rocky Mountain Innocence Project, who petitioned to have DNA testing done on those cigarette butts found at the scene. In the fall of 2013, testing revealed that not only did the DNA on the cigarette butts not belong to Kathy, but it belonged to an unidentified male. But that's not proof of Kathy's innocence, right? If it had been her DNA, it would have been proof of her guilt. But those cigarette butts could have come from anywhere. They could have blown in with the wind. It wasn't until... Rodney Halbauer's DNA profile was uploaded in late 2013, early 2014, but a match was made. The fact that the DNA on the cigarette butts found near Michelle's body belonged to a literal serial killer who was murdering girls that looked just like Michelle during the exact same time frame and was known to frequent Reno, well, I mean, that's a much different story than the DNA just not belonging to Kathy. So, for the second time, Kathy Wood's sentence was vacated and she was granted a new trial. Before the case could go to trial for a third time, authorities dropped all charges and Kathy was a free woman. But she lost 35 years of her life, the longest prison sentence of any exonerated female prisoner in history. She sued the state of Nevada and the city of Reno for millions of dollars, and she won about 5 six million in total between the two, as she should have. Sadly, though, Kathy Woods died on July fifteenth, 2021, so she only got to experience about seven years as a free woman following her release and only got to enjoy being a millionaire for a little over a year before she passed away. So Rodney Halebauer, imprisoned in Oregon for attempted murder, scheduled to be released in 2026, was suddenly a serial killer. And not just any serial killer, but the infamous San Mateo slasher. But did he kill all of the San Mateo victims? Actually, no. While he had at least one victim's authorities had no idea about in Michelle Mitchell... And probably many, many more. Let's just be real about that. One of the victims that had been attributed to him for nearly 40 years was actually killed by someone else. After getting the DNA hits for Ronnie Cassio and Paula Baxter, authorities started reviewing and retesting evidence in the other three San Mateo cases. 14-year-old Tanya Blackwell and 26-year-old Carol Lee Booth took months to find after they went missing, so there was little to no evidence on their skeletal remains. But Denise Lamp, the 19-year-old who was found stabbed to death in the parking lot at the mall where she worked, she was found just moments after her murder. In retesting all of the evidence, authorities were frustrated when nothing was coming back as a match to Rodney Halbauer until a blood stain from Denise's jacket came back as a match to someone else. 71-year-old Leon Melvin Seymour, a serial rapist who often kidnapped his victims. The twists and turns in this one, I tell ya. So, there were, in fact, two different San Mateo slashers. And maybe more than that. It was the 70s, after all. In January of 2015, 66-year-old Rodney Halbauer was extradited to California to be tried for the murders of Ronnie Cassio and Paula Baxter, to whom he’d been conclusively linked by DNA. The trial, which was an absolute shit show, didn’t begin until August 20th of 2018. There were outbursts and wild claims of his innocence and being railroaded and arguments with prosecutors and the judge, and he tried to represent himself, and the judge wouldn't let him because clearly he was crazy. Just a mess. But on September eighteenth, two 2018, Rodney Lee Halbauer of Muskegon, Michigan, was found guilty on all counts, and he was given two life sentences for each murder. So four life sentences. He was sent back to Oregon to finish serving his term for attempted murder there, which will end in 2026. At that time, he will be extradited to California, where he will spend the rest of his ugly, greasy, miserable, crusty-skinned old life behind bars. At some point between now and then, he's expected to be extradited to Nevada to be tried for the murder of Michelle Mitchell. At the time of this recording, Halbauer, who is 74 now, is housed at the Oregon State Correctional Institution in Salem, Oregon. Though he will likely never be tried for these cases unless he confesses, which he will never do, Halbauer is the only suspect in the murders of Tanya Blackwell and Carol Lee Booth. In November of 2017, 71-year-old Leon Melvin Seymour was charged with first-degree murder in the death of Denise Lamp— I'm super confused about what's happening with this case, though. So in 2017, he was charged with Denise's murder. A trial date was set for August of 2018, but then there was no trial. Some hearings were held in 2020, but still no trial. And then in April of last year, 2022, there was an article in the San Mateo Daily Journal about how he was up for parole on the rape charges that have kept him behind bars since the early 80s. So it's talking about, you know, he did these awful things in the 80s, he's up for parole, and the prosecutors want him to stay behind bars. There's absolutely no mention of Denise's case or his impending trial. So if any of you know what's going on with that case, I would love to hear it because I was very confused. One last little thing, and then we've really got to wrap this burrito up. In 2014, When news broke that Muskegon's own Rodney Lee Halbauer was a serial killer, an article was published by WZZM, which is a news station in West Michigan, 13 on your side, Uh, the Muskegon County Sheriff said that they were reinvestigating a number of cold cases that occurred while Rodney was in Michigan which was most of his life on and off when he wasn't in jail until he went to prison for good, except for all of those times that he escaped and came back to Michigan. One case that was mentioned in particular was the unsolved murders of 18-year-old Barbara Brott and 19-year-old Marianne Hicks of Grand Rapids. The two were roommates, 19-year-old Marianne, who had three children, three children, She was 19. She had three children. She was separated from her husband, and her children had been taken from her and placed in foster care. On March tenth, 1972, while Rodney Halbauer was still very much in the area, the two girls went out for a girls' night. They were last spotted leaving the Canopy Bar in Grand Rapids late that night, and they never returned home. Their bodies were found four months later in a wooded area eight miles outside of Muskegon. They were discovered just two weeks after another pair of pretty young roommates were found murdered in West Michigan, Linda Clark and Claudia Bidstrup. If those names sound vaguely familiar, it's because they were victims of serial killer Danny Raines, one of the serial killer siblings from Kalamazoo that we've talked about. But at this time, authorities didn't know who had killed Linda and Claudia. Uh, All they knew was they now had two sets of young women who'd been murdered and then dumped in the same part of the state within a couple weeks of each other. So that was kind of terrifying. Even more terrifying is that the only articles I could find about Barbara and Marianne's murders were from the couple of days immediately surrounding the discovery of their bodies, Uh, Basically, we've identified these bodies, we don't know how they were killed, why they were killed, or who killed them, but nobody freak out about these bodies of young pretty girls turning up all over West Michigan. So the murders of Barbara Bratt and Mary Ann Hicks remain unsolved to this day. And that, friends, is the case of yet another Michigan serial killer, Rodney Lynn Halbauer, the San Mateo slasher. My primary source for today's episode was old newspapers, and there actually is quite a bit out there on the San Mateo Slasher, but not a lot that dives into the Michigan connections and not a lot that really dives into the girls' lives. So I was I dug up as much of that as I could, but there wasn't a ton out there, Um yeah, I did listen to a couple podcasts. I read some more recent features. So a full listing of the references for this episode will be listed on this episode's page on the Violent Ends website. But primarily old newspapers. I first heard about this case though on an episode of my favorite murder Georgia covered it. I don't think that long ago, maybe a year or two ago, maybe less. Um, and I heard her say the word Michigan, so I wrote down the name. And yeah, what a what a wild story. As always, thank you for coming to my dead talk. So a couple things have changed since we last talked. Um, social media handles, Facebook pages, websites, all of that is now under violent ends. So uh, if you already followed So Dead on Instagram or Facebook, you you just you're still, you still follow. I just changed the name to Violent Ends. So there's no new page that you need to follow. Same with um, the, the podcast feed. Instead of creating a whole new feed that you would have to subscribe to, I just changed the name to Violent Ends. So uh, if you were already following, you're still following. If not, Facebook, Instagram, Violent Ends Podcast. Uh, website is now just violentends.com, although you still can get to it by doing So Dead Podcast. Right now, my goal is if you, you're you searching either Violent Ends Podcast or So Dead Podcast, it'll pull up. And that's still the case, but slowly we'll transition more and more away from So Dead as people adjust adjust a little more to the new name. Thank you all so much for joining me today. A new episode is coming your way in just a couple of weeks. Until then, keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks.